Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Welcome to another episode of Paleo Jam. Thanks to National Science Week, we're in Adelaide, Ghana country, South Australia, and specifically at Flinders University, surrounded by humans. Ah, <laughs> oh, and I didn't even have to prompt them. Well done. I'm your host, Michael Mills, and this episode, we're going to go on a journey to explore the remarkable fossil heritage of South Australia and discussing why the prehistoric South Australian matters, not just to South Australians, but we reckon to the whole world. In this episode, I'm joined by PhD candidate Phoebe McInerney of Flinders University. Hello. Um, I'm joined by Associate Professor Diego Garcia Bellido from the University of Adelaide. Hi. And PhD candidate Tori Botha of the University of Adelaide. Hello. Um, so um, we, and, and I'm representing the Mesozoic today. Well, we're all kind of representing all of it. Um, and, uh, but I'll talk about some Mesozoic stuff at some point. But um, what I want to ask each of you first is to tell us about an, something that's an, an astonishing discovery, a remarkable discovery here in South Australia, something that, that is um, world-changing in terms of our understanding of paleontology, because there's a lot of things across a lot of time periods. And, and Phoebe, I particularly want to start with you, because some of the stuff that you work on is, is pathology, in paleontology, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So pathology is like when you can see things that have happened in life to an animal, so disease or broken bones, and that's remained in the fossil record. And then we can look at the bones, we can see, oh, this broke, or that bird was suffering from a bone disease that led to its death. And it's really cool, but it's super rare. And not many people are able to study it because we're so limited in our understanding. Like we have to just assume that when we see something in a fossil animal the way that they respond to disease and to breaks and the way their bones heal and their immune system works is the same as today because that's all we know and it's really cool that we actually have fossils like that in south australia so so specifically what so, so you work on prehistoric birds yeah yeah so the one that i specifically worked on was jenny honest newtoni and that's a giant fossil bird from the pleistocene of australia and we found that a number of individuals within a population at Lake Calabona um, had a pathology which we identified as osteomyelitis, or bone disease. So, we'll, we'll, and we'll come back to that and, and to the specifics of that. I want to go to you, um, Diego and Toru, because you, you go back a little bit further in time, don't you? Um, uh, yeah, so I go back to the first instance of complex life. So before the Ediacaran was just single-celled organisms, and then we get into the Ediacaran, which is what I study, and this is the first time life gets complex. So things start to look a little bit more than just a tiny little microbe. Yeah, and, and what you're looking at is things that if we were there at the time, we would see individual organisms as opposed to a big pile of slime. Yeah, so we're seeing individual organisms interacting with each other, some of them moved around, some of them interacting with the microbial mat that they lived on, quite complex systems for 500 million years ago, odd million years ago. That's quite a long time ago, isn't it? 
And it's really hard. It's really hard for us to get our brains around. I mean, it's hard enough to get our brains around, you know, a a thousand years ago, ten thousand years ago. But when you start to talk about half a billion years ago, um, I got a a trilobite that that from from Emu Bay. I spent some time down there with with Diego and some of the other paleos, and it's five hundred and fifteen million years ago. So Diego, the the Emu Bay shale. What's what's the international significance of that? Well, uh, Emu Bay uh, Shale is in Kangaroo Island, in, uh, in the southern uh, uh, coast of, of South Australia, a few, about 100 kilometers from, from Adelaide. <clears throat> and it's the only fossil site in the southern hemisphere that preserves the soft parts of organisms in the Cambrian. So most of the fossils, as we know, are bones and shells, etc. But in very exceptional circumstances, we get other parts of the organisms preserved, say the muscles, the skin, the blood vessels, the nervous system, the eyes, etc. And uh, for the Cambrian, the most famous one is in the Northern Hemisphere, it's it's, uh, Burgess Shale in Canada, but we've got one such fossil locality in uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia and South Australia, and it's this Emu Bay Shale in KI, uh, which just has uh, probably the best fossils for a few organisms that that we know of in, in the Cambrian. Okay, so so there's a whole lot of stuff in in Canada. Yep, and China. Um, and, and China, but there's some specific stuff that we've got here that yes. is quite unique. Yeah, I, I think if, if I had to choose a particular fossil that uh, uh, represents the Emu Bay in the international arena for the Cambrian uh, soft body preservation, those would be those would be the eyes of Animalocaris. Animalocaris and its skin is the group of uh, apex predators at the time. They grew to about a meter, a meter plus in length. Uh, they're arthropods, very early branch from the group of, of uh, that includes modern day uh, spiders and and, uh, and insects and uh, and crayfish. Um, and this very early arthropod had already developed in about 20 million years had developed a complexity in their visual systems that rivals today's dragonflies, which are the arthropods, the insects with the most lenses in their compound eyes. So it's telling us evolution is going very, very fast whenever that's an advantage. uh, And and what we see in Anomalocaris, there's there's that idea of predation, isn't it? Yes. So uh, we see, uh, as opposed to what happens in the Diacron, where there's no evidence of predation, by the time we get into the Cambrian, uh, just 40 million years later, we have all the animal groups that we see around us today, and predation has taken over. This is uh, an arms race, and if you uh, develop a way to swim faster, your predator is going to have to get better, more acute vision in order to see you before you swim away. And the same happens with shells and spines, etc. So it's it's, it's a change of, of the biosphere. So all of those things, like shells, like, like, like spines, like camouflage, all of those come about because animals don't want to get eaten. Exactly. And, and the idiacrin, Tori, so we, we see none of that? Yeah, they're all, they all get along. All, is, it like, is it like, is, yeah. is idiacra land, like this yeah. magical hippieville? Yeah, they're all just soft-bodied, living in the warm... In peace and harmony. Yeah, shallow marine environment on the lush microbial mat, all getting along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so who had the first nibble? Oh. Uh, well, uh, nibble on, uh, on decomposing organisms. Yeah. There is evidence of that already in the Ediacaran, but nobody's biting into anybody else at the time that is alive and moving uh, by the Cambrian that changes. Yeah, there's so. no crunched up Dickinsonia in a Kimberella no. or anything like that. No. <laughs> Could that just be accidental? Like the, they're on the mat and then they just go over a dead animal and it's 
looks like? Possibly. There's one burrowing organism in the Ediacaran, but the difference between the Ediacaran and once you get into the Cambrian is the burrowing is horizontal. It's not vertical. And little, tiny little organism called Icaria that just sort of moved along. So So, so why the change with that burrowing? Probably predation has something to do with it as well. You're much more likely to escape a predator if you can burrow vertically down into the sediment rather than just trying to run away from them just under a little bit of sand along uh, the seafloor. So we, we probably also have uh, some more complex changes in the biosphere. Oxygen levels maybe. Also animals are three-dimensional, whereas Ediacarans in most cases were B-dimensional. Uh, so they didn't have muscles that we know of. So once muscles are quote-unquote invented, uh, then things can drill deeper in the sediment, and once does that happen? That's the start of, of the Cameron explosion, really. Yep. Uh, so, Phoebe, coming back to, to the pathology you were talking about, and we might come and ask Diego and Tori of pathologies in Ediacarans and, and, and early Cambrians. Specifically with this, this Jenny Ornos, what, what was it, and, and how, did you, how was it found? Oh, so, I mean... We found it at Lake Calabona and that is an absolutely beautiful fossil site. We get an incredible number of fossils which are just like nearly complete articulated skeletons of these massive animals including Diprotodon and Genionis that you guys would know. And so we have been able to collect a really large number of these fossils and when we take them back to the lab and prep them out we know their bones so well that you start to see differences. And when you have something that is so different and it looks really distorted and lumpy and it doesn't look like proper bone, then it's probably a pathology related to disease or infection or something like that. Um, and our um, preparator, Kerry, actually initially found that some of the Genionis fossils had pathologies and he was comparing them against some of the really interesting pathological remains of other animals that he just has in the lab because we just have things. Um, so he, we just have things. That's so, <laughs> that's, yeah, they were just yeah, yeah. It was quite astonishing, really, because, like I said, it's so rare. This bone is so fragile that typically it wouldn't be preserved that well because it's not as strong as normal bone. So it would just quite easily be broken down. But because of the preservation at Calabona, we can actually see um, this stuff really well preserved. So is, is it a common disease? We found it to be fairly common at like Calabona. We had um, like 30 individuals found across Lake Calabona that have been excavated and four of them have this the same pathology. So that suggests to us that it's not just you know, a single individual that's hurt itself and has a disease or an infection, but it's actually a recurring thing that's quite regular in the population. And then as we excavate more journey on this individuals, we find more with these pathologies. And ultimately, it's, it's suggesting that there's probably something in the environment that's maybe reducing their immune system response to um, like being injured. Yep. So at the South Australian Museum, you find a lot of um, ichthyosaur fossils and you, you find the snouts. And the snouts, you find the snouts because when they die, they kind of basically go yeah, snout first, the snout snaps off. 
and that's the bit that gets fossilized often, um, and the rest of it kind of floats off and stuff. So, you, but you also find um, I was in Queensland recently at Chronosaurus Corn in Richmond, and there's some pathologies on some of the the plesiosaurs. Um, or on bite marks from chronosaurs, but the, the animal is healed. And those things are fascinating. I want to go way back to, 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 to your time, Diego. I mean, not your actual time of when you I'm not you that were, old. <laughs> but, but for you and Tori, like, are, are there pathologies that we see? And, and by pathologies, of course, we're talking about diseases and things. Well, it could that, be breakages that have happened during life or you know, bite marks, things like that. Like All of those types of things are classified under pathology. Yeah, so what do we see in the fossil record that's, that's much older? Um, we have some, some kind of examples in Dickinsonia. So our colleague Scott Evans looks at Dickinsonia a lot and they found that like Dickinsonia can tear and stuff in some instances or there's like an interruption in sort of, sort of the lines that go across a Dickinsonia called like the modules. If there's an interruption in the growth or something and that then starts again later, there'll be some oddities in the modules across a Dickinsonia that could indicate that, the, that something may have happened, whether they got partially buried in a storm event and managed to get themselves out, but got a little damaged in the process and things So like it's that. showing, so it's that same kind of thing where you've, 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 you've broken your leg, but it's been fixed and you see the growth marks, you see, we see that in Dickinsonia. Yeah, yeah, you can see it sort of- They didn't have legs, again. by the way, just, yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so with, with uh, what we see in the Cambrian is unequivocal cases of uh, both predation uh, marks and also uh, organisms that have had uh, teratologies, meaning something that has killed the organism because they didn't recover. And that's especially evident in things that have external shells, exoskeletons like the trilobites. For, for instance, uh, with Redlichia, we've got a couple of papers, uh, three papers that we've published recently on how those are recorded in the Bay. We've got thousands of specimens, and we've gone through the collections, uh, my colleagues and I, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy uh, Holmes, and also uh, uh, Russ, Russell and, and John Patterson, um, and we've realized that there are various cases with the trilobites, the two big, uh, big genera, that have evidence of have been attacked with spines broken off their heads, and these are uh, protective spines, and that have been able to recover, but also cases probably of infection infection that has affected the division of body segments, and therefore the two consecutive body segments are fused together uh, rather than joined together, which is what is the normal trilobite, uh, observed in normal trilobites. So there's a range of, of, of evidences from already from the early Cambrian uh, of uh, animals. They need to recover from having either infections or through molting, for instance, sometimes. Uh, the exoskeleton gets stuck and they can't pull it out without ripping it. And, and you have evidence of that, uh, that scar tissue in the, uh, the, uh, the specimen that comes out of that malt. So yes, that, that is, uh, you need special sites like Emu Bay or, or places that you've got a lot of uh, specimens out of a single locality because as we were mentioning before, this is you know, a small percentage of the whole population maybe 10, 15% uh, show evidence of, of these uh, problems. So as a, as a paleontologist, um, f for each of you, what, what's that moment like when you, 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 you see that quirky pathology thing and you know that this is, you, you might not know exactly what it is, but you know that there's something really quite fascinating going on in that space? Because we, 
you know, you, you, you read dinosaur books and other paleo books and stuff, and you often, you, you're looking at, most times you're looking at just what the animal looked like, or maybe something of what it did, but this is, this is delving much more deeply, isn't it, into, into the whole uh, paleosphere? Well, I, I think we all work with uh, search in, uh, images in our brain, and when you find something that sticks out, it's, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I don't know exactly what it is on that trial, but there's something wrong. And that's when you search for what is it that you can identify that is different. Uh, a callus maybe in a femur or something like that in the case of trilobites, something, it's just your brain, it just gives you that spark. It says, wait a minute, there's, there's something not perfectly right with this specimen. Let's look at what that is. Yeah, definitely. And then you kind of start to think about the other specimens that you've seen. You're like, this kind of reminds me of something that I've seen in this other one. So then you run back to that and you're like, oh my gosh, it's actually very similar. Like this is a recurring thing. Yeah, Tori? I mean, I don't personally look at any of the Dickinsonias myself, but I don't, so, so I don't quite look at the pathology and stuff of the specimen, like the species that I look at, but just looking at different ways that my, the three species I do look at respond to burial and defamation is pretty cool. And just the three themselves respond so differently. Is it? Because cause you're, you're, even in that case, you're looking at organisms responding to things. So what, what have you learned through that? Um, sort of can sort of get an idea of, maybe what they consisted of if they were really flexible or a bit more rigid or like and then and if they're deforming in the direction of the current and things like that like were they then sessile and like more solidified like on the sea floor. sessile so it, sessile so lived lived in the one spot on the sea floor didn't move lived and died in okay, the same so spot. so <laughs> like 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 things like sea squirts that just live in the same spot and just kind of suck in yeah. the food from wherever it and, and yeah, and like a tree, like a, a it, tree. Yeah, once it Good. grows, it's easier there. example. Yeah. Yes, and an emery. Yes, to go to yeah. something, a tree, yeah. of course. <laughs> Another aspect that I think is, is in, interesting from the Ediacaran and the Cambrian um, is the actual decomposition. Once an organism dies, the bacteria covering the surface and inside are going to start to decompose. And that's another what we call taphonomy. So how, what steps happen between the time that organism dies and the time it's actually preserved as a fossil? And, and you can see evidence, and Tori can uh, speak about this because she's, she's actually looking into how much uh, change there is due to the actual tissue being softer and therefore more prone to uh, squishing and degrading between the time it was alive and the time we find it in the fossil beds. Indeed, the acron is very significant because none of them have shells. So this, uh, all we're looking at is the outside soft tissue. Uh, so uh, by the time you get into the Cambrian with the exoskeletons of things like trilobites, etc., uh, and, and the shells of mollusks, it's not as evident, but during the Ediacaran it's very significant. So Phoebe, what, what, and I'll ask each of the three of you this as well, what was it that drew you to more recent things like, like the birds? What, 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 in terms of your paleo journey, what, what, why birds? I mean, birds are obviously the coolest. <laughs> Come on. Well, next question, Diego. <laughs> so, yeah, what, what, what is it about them? I mean, we've talked a great deal so far about the, the pathologies amongst different organisms that we I find through paleontology. but birds to be, they're so accessible. I mean, you just walk outside, and especially here where we have parrots and they're so loud. Like, they're so easy to watch and see, and then it really makes you curious about, you know, their... Um, so diverse and what's driving that diversity and how does that diversity look in their skull shape or in their wings and I think yeah I find that 
really interesting and because it like we can look at the fossils and make all these interpretations about extinct things and then walk outside and there's the bird and you're like oh cool I mean obviously genuineness giant bird isn't just outside the door but you know, <laughs> I can imagine yeah and and and, and again that, that's that thing isn't it that that you've got real live examples of the things that you study or at least things that are similar whereas Tori yeah <laughs> all of your subject matters descendants are dead yes <laughs> <laughs> well possibly possibly I mean, we, we, we don't we, know do, do we know do, we, we don't actually know that can we we can't say that there are no no uh, members or descendants of the Ediacara biota alive now. Obviously, there was something that was alive then that is our ancestor. Otherwise, we'd not be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Is it is it is it a, a completely lost group that we know nothing about? What what's where, where does all that sit? And 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 what does South Australia tell us about that? You're asking a very big question. <laughs> That's right. Here at PaleoJet, we ask the big questions. Yes. So there's a few different sort of hypotheses. So originally, um, there was a hypothesis that all the Ediacara biota belonged in its own kingdom. So we know the kingdoms as plants, animals, and fungi. They thought that the Ediacarans were in their own kingdom called Vendobionta. That went extinct, never to be seen again. Then we hit the Cambrian, and that led to everything today. Um, the hypothesis more standing today is that maybe some of the stuff that we have were early stem groups of what we have that may have eventually led to things. But we do have stuff in the Ediacaran that we don't see past the Ediacaran. So we have a fair few like triradial things in the Ediacaran, so things with three planes of symmetry, and you don't see anything living today with triradial symmetry. So whether that was a weird experiment in the Ediacaran that never made it, but whether the Ediacara biota made it past the Ediacaran or not as well is a question of preservation as well. Were yeah. these things actually missing from life itself or were they just not preserved once you get into the Cambrian and there's more of a bias towards things preserving that have a hard shell? Diego, thoughts on the, <laughs> on the big well, question? Uh, yes, I, I think that, uh, that the changes on the way we've been looking at these fossils, uh, we started thinking, oh, they're old jellyfish and old squid and, uh, sorry, old, uh, uh, old uh, worms and so on. Um, and we, the pendulum sort of went the other way and, and tried to fit everything outside of the, the tree of, uh, of animal life. And I think now we're, uh, the pendulum seems to be coming towards a... a, a a middle where some of those things are probably ancestors of things that are eventually uh, a part of the animal tree of life. So going towards becoming animals, but not quite there yet because they don't have all the characters. And then there are other things, fractofuses, uh, some of those taxa that are growing uh, by uh, uh, fractal repetition, uh, or the triradials that don't fit any of the animal groups. Actually, animals don't have the genes to be able to produce that sort of uh, branching patterns and that uh, those symmetries. So there has to be, this is a time uh, when the planet is just experimenting on multicellularity and, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if there were actually other things in there just like we've got three major kingdoms today the plants the fungi and the animals that are multicellular maybe back in the Ediacaran before those three were predominant and they were actually almost absent uh, maybe there were other ways of making multicellular organisms and that's what we see in the Ediacaran. Yep. All right so we've only got a few minutes left because that's what time does. Um, We've been talking about specifically about some South Australian discoveries, and and I started off by 
talking about you know why or asking the question about why the fossil heritage in South Australia matters, not just to South Australians, but to, to everyone. I want to go to each of you, Phoebe, first. <laughs> <laughs> what, if, if you were given a platform, oh, you have been, there's a microphone, you're on a podcast, um, to, to tell people why we should learn about our fossil heritage in South Australia. And it could just be that you, they have to learn about Jenny Honours. But if there is... <laughs> Why, why, why should we learn this stuff? Not, not, and not just paleontologists, and not just people in labs. Why, why should we be teaching young people, not so young people, about the stuff that is born of this place, fossil-wise? I mean, it's, in, it's incredible. Like, we have an incredible diversity of things from all across life, the history of life here. And, you know, it's not just South Australia. South Australia is important to us, but... The entire world is really important and how everything interrelates because of course South Australia hasn't been you know the way it is today it's been interacting with all these other places in Antarctica and other areas that are so significant to our fossil heritage as well but I think that just understanding you know where we come from and what life has been like over the past just gives you this really broad and like deep understanding and appreciation of what we have now and I think that's really necessary at this point in time. Absolutely great answer. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I really liked Phoebe's answer. So <laughs> what yeah, said. I just yeah, yeah, I just think like it's yeah, um I think they should care as well because it's we have some of the best sites right in our backyard. Then Flinders we have the international boundary between two time periods. We named the time period the Ediacaran. And yeah, we just have this amazing fossil record. And yeah, if they know about it, it just puts things into perspective a little bit more as well. But yeah, maybe the things that you have going on in your life aren't that <laughs> big after all when you look at yeah, the... Yeah, soft-bodied thing that we yeah. just think ages ago. Yeah, like 555 million years of life that we have recorded through the fossil record in South Australia alone is, yeah. Pretty cool. astonishing, isn't it? Diego, yeah. I, I remember um, at Paleontology Week years ago chatting with Scotty Hocknell from Queensland Museum and he said if, when he was a kid, if you wanted to be a paleontologist in Australia you needed to go overseas because there wasn't the research and there wasn't the support. Now, you've come from overseas to come here to do paleontology, so there's, there's, a, there's a cool story for you in terms of, of acknowledging the significance of here, not just to your career, but, but the stuff. So, your, so, your, your so, so the reason why Australia stands out, uh, when you talk about the Ediacaran Cameron in this planet. Everybody knows about Australia. Everybody knows about the Ediacaran fossils from the Flinders Ranges. Uh, and and uh, the same is happening with Emu Bay Shale. Uh, I think we just happen to be, uh, by sheer luck, in the state of the country or the continent that has the very best record for just before and just after the appearance of animals in this planet. And it's a major change. There hasn't been any change like it since then. 500 and 50 million years ago, 540 million years ago, we, we moved from a planet that has a few 
organisms beginning, well, multicellular organisms beginning to move around, 20 million years later, we've got basically the sort of organisms that the animals we've got around us today, the mollusks with their shells, and we've got the arthropods with their jointed appendages. And we, even our ancestors, the, the uh, earliest chordates begin in the Cambrian. So it's, it's a major change. And South Australia happens to be, it's, it's the perfect frame for it. We've got the just before and the just after. And explained quality. I mean, uh, the best for the Diakron and one of the best for the Cambrian. So that's why I came to Australia. And, and on top of that, on top of that, as, as the representative of the, the Mesozoic um, <laughs> on the panel, and sorry, Mesozoic fans, we haven't got too much, but we have probably the best opalized plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, like the Adiman plesiosaur, I think it's like 35 kilos worth of or more of, of opal. So that'll buy the house, but don't break it up because it's a beautiful, beautiful fossil. You don't find stuff like that anywhere else in the world. There's some opalized dinosaur stuff in Lightning Ridge, but the stuff that we have here, so, and, and then we come to places like the Narracourt Caves and Lake Calabona. And so we've got this, okay, we've got one dinosaur bone, from Kakuri, which I think was opalized in itself, but with this extraordinary fossil heritage. Um, and I've, you know, those that know me know that I've been kind of banging on about this for a long time, that we need to know our stories because this is where we live. And the more you know, and I think what's been called about just some of the stuff you've talked about tonight is reinforcing the importance and the value of the stuff that's here. Um, you know, we, we were in Narracourt recently and there are people there that know the fossil stuff and, and get it, but there's a lot of the people that don't realise how significant and remarkable the fossil heritage is there. So many people, and, and South Australia is not unique in that. There are people in regions all around the world, particularly often if it's a fossil site in your own backyard, um, but then there are other places like Winton where you go to the school and they know all of the Australian dinosaur names. Um, so on that note, <laughs> almost like I timed it well, um, thank you to our panel. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you from me. <laughs> It's time to spread some paleo jam.